0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme.
1: I already had my grandfather's regimental number when I started researching his war record. My cousin Mary knew he had run away with two pals and joined up. All three were 16, she texted, and all three came back, which was an achievement in itself it sure was. Of the estimated 210,000 Irishmen from the island of Ireland who served in the British Army during the Great War, over 35,000 never made it home. Our grandfather, Pappy, as we called him, was almost one of them. I spent childhood summers in Gormanstown with him and my grandmother. He was a tall, lean man with a pronounced limp and military-style moustache, I remember being fascinated by his penknife, which had 1914 carved into the handle, the year he stole silently from his home, lied about his age, and enlisted in the Irish Guards. That knife remained a constant companion as he campaigned along the Ypres salient on the Western Front through some of the most fearsome battles the world has ever known. Even in 1917, when a bullet claimed one of his lungs during the Battle of Passchendaele, the Third Battle of Ypres, it remained firmly in his possession. I could imagine him in the trenches, engraving the date onto its handle. Like most who endured the horrors of war, Pappy didn't often speak of his experiences. But as he looked at that knife, he was back in the trenches again confiding that when the order came to climb up and go over the top, he and a comrade would yell, Up Curraha! And they'd keep bellowing it to each other at the top of their lungs as they advanced through the barbed wire, mud and bullets of no man's land. As long as we could hear each other, he said, we knew where the other was. If he still was, any more, was left unsaid. The time came, though, when Pappy failed to respond to this rallying cry. The reason is tersely recorded in his military record as GSW Chest. This gunshot wound landed him on a wounded ship, as he called it, bound for England, where, lying incapacitated on deck, he listened to the cheers of fresh recruits heading for the front as their ships passed in the channel. A nurse would periodically deflate his shattered lung by inserting a yoke, as he referred to it, into the wound. The yoke was like a knitting needle, he said, with gauze on the tip. Strangely, what he remembered most vividly wasn't the excruciating pain of the procedure, but the overpowering odour that emanated from the wound. As young as I was, I could sense that this was one memory he'd rather have left undisturbed. In 1919, after a lengthy convalescence, he returned to a country where, in the wake of 1916, W.B. Yeats had observed a terrible beauty was born and things had changed, changed utterly. What conflicting emotions must he have experienced at this new reality, where the uniform he had so recently worn was now regarded with suspicion and hostility? a sentiment compounded in September 1920 when Balbriggan, only a few miles from his home, was attacked by black and tans, leaving two unarmed civilians dead and a trail of burning houses in their wake. An atrocity that must surely have incensed the many thousand Irishmen who joined up expressly to defend the villages of Little Belgium from just such barbarity. Could they then turned a blind eye to similar outrages occurring on their own soil. Cousin Mary remembers asking him why he had gone off to fight. I too had asked the same question many years earlier. We both got the same unequivocal answer. I was fighting for the freedom of small nations. So it came as no surprise to read in the Irish Bureau of Military History... Reference to his activities supporting the 1st Battalion of the Balbriggan Company of the Irish Volunteers and IRA. Pappy lived to the good age of 89. And what of the knife? His treasured souvenir. Well, I pestered and pleaded, as only a young boy can, for him to give it to me. Which he did, with great reluctance, fearful that I'd lose it. Which, of course... To my great regret, I did, within days. He's often in my thoughts, especially when a marching song of the time drifts across the airwaves and every November on Armistice Day, marking the ending of hostilities on the Western Front. Honouring those who fought in the First World War is still a work in progress here, so while I may not wear a poppy this weekend, poppy will be in my thoughts. And I will remember him and the many, many thousands of his brothers in arms, proud Irishmen all, who fought and died for the freedom of small nations.
2: Up to mighty London came an Irish streets are paved with gold, sure everyone was gay Singing songs of Piccadilly, Strand and Leicester Square Till Paddy got excited, then he shouted to them there It's a long way to Tipperary It's
3: a long way
4: to go My Auntie Mary left Dublin in 1958, to join her fiancé in England. A scientist from UCD, he had just secured a job at the University of London. They married and set up home in Stoke Newington and later Sussex. While not belonging to that tribe of heroic men and women who dug the roads and tunnels of Britain, broke their bodies on building sites or kept the wards of British hospitals thriving, my aunt and uncle were emigrants nonetheless. They didn't eke out a living in the Irish neighbourhoods of Kilburn or Kentish Town, but rather enjoyed life in the suburbs with English friends and colleagues. While Mary's three siblings stayed in Dublin within a narrow radius of their parental home, Mary was apart. She brought her generous Irish spirit with her and volunteered her entire working life. At nursery schools and playgroups, she tirelessly gave of herself to help children to learn and grow through play. Mary was the first woman I knew to call herself a feminist, proudly. The strength in her voice a challenge to those in the room who dared question her. I can still see her planted firmly in the centre of our living room, with a gin and tonic in hand, ice cubes clinking against the crystal of my parents' sole surviving wedding present tumbler, telling us her three nieces to never depend on a man. We must always have a job, always have our own money and always rely on ourselves. My dad and Uncle Leonard surely gave each other knowing looks or threw their eyes up to heaven. Mary up to her old tricks again. My mother, Carting food in from the kitchen was too frazzled to contribute to the conversation, but her smirk showed us that she relished witnessing her older sister poke at traditional views. Just as the children in her playgroups benefited from her undivided attention, Mary always made a point of taking time with us children one-to-one. In those precious moments, she made me feel like the sole focus of her world. Knowing, as she did, that I, like her, was terrified of spiders, she confided in me how every autumn, as the gnarly horse chestnut trees along her road shed their seeds, she stuffed handfuls of them into her handbag and carried them home. She hid those shiny russet orbs in every corner of her house as she firmly believed the scent of them kept spiders at bay. Mary and her family lived in England through all the dark years of the IRA bombing campaign. Hate mail and toxic anonymous phone calls came their way in the leafy suburbs. She never knew who made the calls or who told whom about the Irish family living in the area. Those were not easy times for them and not years I have heard them revisit. One constant during all the decades was their annual visit home. There was a mystique about our English cousins. Their accents made them sound intelligent to my self-effacing Irish ears. Their clashed t-shirts and non-attendance at mass seeming like pure rebellion, something both shocking and thrilling. For her part, Mary, like a battery charging up, took on a kind of power surge during those visits home. It had to last until the next visit. Now, somewhat frail, Mary is assisted through life by her husband and home help. Once or twice a week they connect her with my mother back in Ireland via a phone or iPad, depending on which device is cooperating. Mary forgets about the technology sometimes. My mother's heart gives way when she asks mum if she'd like a cup of tea. And Mary's not aware of the camera's gaze and sometimes looks off into the middle distance. But every so often the old spark returns, when my mother might nag her about getting a haircut or tell a story Mary somehow recalls from their last conversation. You told me that before, Anne, she'll snap. And although my mother could be offended, instead she is delighted to see her sister's old self again. Now I too have siblings long established abroad, with little likelihood of them ever residing here longer than an extended holiday. The ache of emigration, both for the emigrants and those left behind, like pyrite buried within a building block, expands and spreads, extending its cracks and fissures. I witness my mother and Mary's tear-rimmed eyes as they say their goodbyes, before an arm stretches across Mary's face and she disappears from view. I'm left cold at the realisation that this will be my future too. The other day, I stopped on my way to work, leaned my bike against a wall and filled the various pockets of my jacket to bursting with fistfuls of smooth conkers. And I wondered if Mary, across the water in England, helped by one of her carers, is doing the same.
0: The falling leaves drift by the
3: window The autumn leaves are red and gold I
0: see your lips, the summer kisses
5: The last time I was in Leadville, it was threatening to snow. The wind was spitting nickel sized flakes onto the sidewalk. Leadville is a ghost mining town that sits two miles above sea level in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. It was once considered a city. That time it boasted 30,000 inhabitants, one tenth of whom were Irish. Today the population is less than 3,000. The discovery of a rich vein of silver generated a rush back in 1879. Many orphans of the Irish famine newly arrived into America learned of a place that might offer survival. In the main, those who arrived in the country on coffin ships did so hungry, desperate, unskilled and often ostracised. Word spread of a mountain city high in the clouds in this new land where no one would be turned away provided they were prepared to work. 3,000 Irish, many of them from the village of Alighys on the Berra Peninsula, made the harsh journey to the mines and the smelters of Leadville, Colorado. As a measurement of how inhospitable the climate can be this high in the Rockies, the annual St. Patrick's Day festival and parade is nowadays held in early autumn rather than in March. Leadville today is a shadow of its previous glory. It once boasted a theatre and two opera houses – one of which staged a public appearance by Oscar Wilde during his North American tour. He was lowered in a bucket to the lowest depths of the matchless mine where he drank three rounds of whiskey with the miners. One of the town's original saloons, the Silver Dollar, is still in business. I sat at the bar and read the sign above the piano. It warns, don't shoot the piano player, he's doing his best. As if to add punctuation there are real bullet holes in the wall. In its heyday in the late 1800s, Leadville had a reputation for being one of the most lawless places in the West. Oscar Wilde claimed that the revolver was their book of etiquette and that the weapon teaches lessons not easily forgotten. Around this time in Leadville's history, the first appointed marshal was run out of town and his replacement shot dead one month later. It was not until the arrival of Sheriff Mart Duggan that some semblance of order was restored. Duggan is said to have been a quick shooting, hard drinking, brawling Irishman afraid of no one. Life expectancy was low in Leadville in the late eighteen hundreds. The Irish who settled here occupied the lowest rung on the social ladder. In the Catholic pauper section of Evergreen Cemetery there is a hollow in the earth. Some years ago, this was excavated. Within the Depression were found the bodies of approximately 1,100 Irish immigrants. The graves carry no markers or headstones. From church records, it is understood that the average age of those who are buried there is 23. About half of these are children. Mine work was hard and the climate cruel. The Irish are credited with instigating at least two strikes for better conditions. In 1896, a walkout by disgruntled miners resulted in a prolonged and bloody dispute that ended in the death of six strikers, as well as many injuries. Homemade cannon, dynamite and firearms were used by both sides. The economy of Colorado was badly affected by the closure of the industry, but the power and political influence of the mine owners, in conjunction with the availability of strikebreakers, finally defeated the unions. Not too long ago, a memorial was unveiled to commemorate the lives of those long-forgotten Irish souls. A mound echoing the contours of ancient Irish burial sites is topped off with the bronze image of a miner genuflecting on his knee. He is holding a pickaxe and has a hand on an Irish harp with four strings, each symbolising one of the provinces. The figure looks to the east in the direction of home, in the direction of Ireland. This statue was designed and created by a Wicklow man, Terry Brennan, and is a fitting symbol of recognition for a lost generation of immigrants who arrived in Leadville possessing nothing but dreams and hope and the strength of their arms. In the past, researchers have experienced difficulty in capturing oral history or personal stories relating to Leadville's huge loss of Irish lives in the silver mines. The horror and tragedy of what was experienced there seems to be an airbrushed from family histories, something to be never spoken of and best forgotten. This memorial will restore dignity to a past and to a people who have been largely forgotten and offer a place for reflection on the nameless who rest so far from home beneath soil and snow two miles high in the Rocky Mountains. (laughs)
2: The scrapbook I kept around the time of the Beatles' first and only appearance in Dublin in November 1963 was as much about their boots as the Beatles themselves. I'd been a fan of the group since first hearing Love Me Do a year previously. Please Please Me had come out early in the new year, followed by From Me To You in the spring, and then in the summer came the adrenaline rush of She Loves You. And now I was counting the days until the Beatles came to Ireland. Not that I'd be seeing them. My mother thought that at 14, I was too young to be going on my own to Dublin with no means of getting home to Trim afterwards. But at least I got to watch them live on television in October, topping the bill on Sunday night at the London Palladium and sending the audience into the throes of what the media were starting to call Beatlemania. So as the time approached, I contented myself with adding to my scrapbook of newspaper and magazine clippings. What's this Beatle business all about? Or Beatles under siege in theatre, were typical articles? But when I noticed one headed, and now the Beatle boot is coming, my heart skipped a beat. Every young teenage fan wants to look a bit like their idols. And for Beatle fans at the time, there were three main elements to that look. Their hair, clothes, especially their grey collarless suits, and their footwear, close-fitting black boots with elastic sides. But for a schoolboy 60 years ago, having a mop-top hairstyle was impossible when extremely short hair at the side, back and indeed front was required at school and by one's mother. Collarless jackets or suits were possibly available on another planet and the only elasticated boots I was familiar with were the sturdy kind favoured by horse riders and cattle dealers. According to the article, beetle boots were made of soft leather, stood about eight inches high and had a Cuban stacked heel and a pointed or chiseled toe. And Mr James Boyden of Boylan Shoes in Emmy Vale, County Monaghan, was promising that the Boots would be in the shops just in time for Christmas. On the eve of the Fab Four's arrival, in red watercolour paint, I emblazoned the words across two pages. The Beatles in Ireland, November 7th, 1963. The first newspaper clipping I pasted said, Gardie prepare for Operation Beatles. The following evening, I cut out a tiny clipping announcing Adelphi Cinema closed this afternoon, on stage tonight at 6.30 and 9pm, instead of usual film programme, The Beatles and All Star Company. Beside that, I put a photo of them at Dublin Airport, doing a little dance on the tarmac in their soft leather boots. And then my mother, who'd been reading a section of the Evening Herald I hadn't vandalised, showed me page 10, the Beatle boot is here, it announced in block capitals, devoting the entire page to the topic. Nowadays, we'd call it an advertorial, a central article surrounded by advertisements for shops all over Dublin that had the boots in stock. OD Shoes Limited were the distributors, and they promised they'd have them in outlets in the provinces the following week. Would they be available in trim, I wondered. Over the following days, I pasted in lots of cuttings about the Beatles in Dublin, showing the scenes in Middle Abbey Street as thousands of fans leaving the early show encountered those arriving for the second one. 200 Gardaí tried to cope with the mayhem, which continued until after the group's second performance. One photo showed Ringo, John and George still in their collarless stage suits, cooped up in the back of an Evening Herald delivery van that was used to get them to the Gresham Hotel. But among all the clippings, I also managed to fold and paste the whole beetle boot page so it could be opened out, allowing me to repeatedly pore over the photos and illustrations and read about how the boots came in crocodile or plain black some with a basket weave pattern on the back or even a zip up the front and all of them apparently had light, flexible soles. That Christmas, when Noola, a married sister of mine with a sense of mischief, came to visit, she presented me with a gift wrap box and said, I heard you were hoping for a new pair of slippers. To be honest, they were at least a size too large, a bit long at the toe, not exactly close-fitting around the ankles, and the thin soles didn't cope well outdoors in winter. But as I clattered in my beetle boots towards 1964, as far as I was concerned, I was walking on air. Me, you know she's happy as can be, you know she said so. I'm in love with her and I feel fine. Baby says she's mine, you know she tells me all the time, you know she said
0: so. It was not a victory, there was no triumph, only an exhausted sigh of relief as the world mourned its dead, and a generation of soldiers became ghosts destined to live forever as young men suspended in time, inhabiting the memories of the parents and wives and lovers who had waited. When peace was declared at 11am on November 11th, 1918, there was little to celebrate. The mood was of lamentation. Anger would follow. Ordinary people blamed their leaders. Families grieved for sons and brothers, husbands and fathers the maimed, shell-shocked veterans who did return were often shunned as damaged reminders of horrors best forgotten. Instead of a predicted brief skirmish, the conflict had dragged on for four years and three months, redrawing the maps of Europe, causing empires to collapse. An estimated 17 million died. In the global upheaval, as many as 70 million military personnel were mobilised. It was the first time a war had not been confined to the battlefield. Total war had emerged. National economies were directed at producing munitions. Factories were converted to the manufacture of weapons. Supplying armies became an industry. Vehicles were requisitioned, as were horses, some eight million of which perished. Instead of the dramatically choreographed cavalry charges of the past, trench warfare extended over vast areas of territory, creating filthy, rat-infested squalor. Torrential rain throughout July 1917 at Passchendaele resulted in more men dying through suffocating in the mud than from wounds. Adding to the disastrous physical conditions were vicious technological advancements. Poison gas, barbed wire, tanks and aerial bombardment. Late in his novel, The Redetsky March, Joseph Roth, veteran of the Eastern Front and inspired chronicler of his beloved Austro-Hungarian Empire, describes the reaction when news of the assassination of Emperor Franz Josef's unpopular nephew finally reaches a military outpost at the most easterly edge of the then-Empire, which had extended to the Russian border. The cavalry officers, enjoying splendid uniforms, magnificent horses and willing women, drink, swagger and exchange banter. War is but an abstract concept. They dismiss Archduke Franz Ferdinand's death as a rumour, oblivious that their world will die with him. Eerily, it had all been foreseen as early as 1888 when the shrewdest of German chancellors, Otto von Bismarck, had announced one day the Great European War will come out of some damned foolish thing in the Balkans. He judged correctly. A nervous young Bosnian Serb, Garvillo Princip, a member of the secret nationalist organisation Unification or Death, the Black Hand, was one of seven assassins dispatched to Sarajevo. The royal visit was to facilitate Ferdinand's proposals, granting concessions to South Slavs, which would block hopes of securing an independent Serbian state. One of Princep's co-assassins on June 28, 1914, had already thrown a bomb which had exploded under another car, causing the royal party to be driven on to a reception, shocked if unharmed. After the presentation, en route to visit those injured in the car blast, the Archduke's driver took a wrong turning, which brought the Royal Motorcade, ironically, into Franz Joseph Street, where Princip had just bought a sandwich. He fired two shots, one killing Archduchess Sophie outright. The Archduke died within minutes. Many millions of deaths would follow. Although the Serbs in Belgrade had accepted all but one of the Austro-Hungarian demands, outlined in an outrageous ten-point ultimatum, the sole refusal, that of ending anti-Austrian propaganda, was enough. Austria declared war on Serbia. From July 1914, the nations of Europe joined in. Germany would support Austria-Hungary. When the Kaiser asked his cousin, the Tsar, for his support against Serbia, he was refused. The Russian Empire would assist its fellow Slavs. Germany declared war on Russia. The next day saw Germany and France declare war on each other. Britain, though in alliance with France and Russia, hesitated. But then Germany invaded Belgium. History's many ironies confirmed the 200,000 Irishmen enlisted in the British army. Back home in Ireland, assorted of dreamers, idealists and poets staged an insurrection. On April 6th, 1917, the United States entered the war. The old order was changing. Empires did fall. The Russian, the German, the Austro-Hungarian and finally the Ottoman, the sick man of Europe. Writers and artists went to serve. Many were to die, such as Alain Fournier, slain in the first weeks. Poets Wilfred Owen and Edward Thomas Francis Ledwidge was killed while assisting stretcher-bearers. Also lost was German expressionist painter Franz Marck. Others returned, such as writers Robert Graves and Siegfried Sassoon, while J.R.R. Tolkien saw atrocities on the Somme, which influenced the nightmarish battle sequences in The Lord of the Rings. Also posted to the Somme was German artist Otto Dix, who, in common with Sassoon, was initially excited by the notion of going to war, Sassoon changed his mind about combat being a jolly outing and made loud his protests. Dix created his chilling, De Craig, war sequence of 52 stark etchings and at the end of his life, in 1969, admitted the war had truly haunted him. Playwright Bertolt Brecht survived, as did the surrealist John Cotto. Artist George Brock suffered serious head wounds and never forgot his ordeal. Rafe von Williams volunteered to fight in France. His frail fellow composer Gustav Holst drove an ambulance. It is said that the last sounds Claude Debussy heard while dying in Paris in March 1918 were German guns bombarding the city. One German soldier, Erich Maria Remarque, articulated it. All Quiet in the Western Front was published in an English translation within two months of its German publication. It sold 275,000 copies in less than six weeks. Celebrated in the UK, it was denounced in Germany as defeatist. In it, the young narrator Paul Bäumer reports, We have become wild beasts. We do not fight. We defend ourselves against annihilation. It is not against men that we fling our bombs. Death is hunting us down. An uneasy peace was declared. It was to prove merely an interlude. Another world war was already gathering a sinister momentum.
3: On this morning's programme we heard The Freedom of Small Nations by Peter Trant. Conquers was by Sheila Marr. Beneath the Snow in Leadville was by Joseph Carney. Beetle Boots by Pat Dunn. And a script first broadcast in 2018, Remembrance by Eileen Battersby. The music was It's a Long Way to Tipperary, sung by John McCormack. Autumn Leaves by Joe Stafford. Five Doors Down in Leadville was sung by the Stillhouse Junkies and I Feel Fine from The Beatles. And the late Eileen Battersby is among the writers included in a book, Sunday Miscellany, a Selection 2018-2023, to published by New Island Books. And it's in the shops now or you can get it at newisland.ie. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binshey. And if you like, you can listen back to this morning's programme on the RTE radio app or listen back on the programme website, rte.ie slash radio one slash Sunday
0: You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.